Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, I also want to welcome you here to the chapel. And if we've not met, my name is Steve Elworth. I'm the Chapel Segan site pastor. Would love to shake your hand in the lobby after the service if we haven't gotten a chance to meet yet. I want to thank Abram, uh, not just for his great announcements and awesome yellow shirt on the video, but for filling in and preaching last week. I got a chance to listen to it on Spotify midweek, and uh, I was bummed I couldn't be here in person. But you guys, if you were here, you were blessed uh, by him bringing the word. He had a big task to go through the whole scripture, and uh, it was awesome. So if you missed it, go back and listen to it. Kevin was on vacation, our lead pastor who's normally at LSU, and so I went over to LSU to fill in. Kevin Kevin and I are going to switch every so often, um, so you'll be seeing him here sometimes, but uh, I missed you guys. I really felt like a lot longer than a week that I was gone, so I'm really excited to be back. One of the things we learned last week is that our air conditioning isn't actually broken. Uh, we've been running some tests, and one of the things that we found is if you didn't know, this room used to be one big room, including the lobby, and with the doors closed during the service, we're not getting enough airflow. So as a temporary band-aid, we're going to keep the doors in the back open. So if you hear things back there or if you're going to the bathroom, try not to be too loud. There's going to be some light coming in. I have, uh, I've never been accused of being too quiet, so hopefully that'll drown out uh, some things. So we're, that's a temporary fix. We're going to fix the airflow problem uh, in the coming months. But for those of you who have stuck with us uh, over the summer, Thank you for enduring the heat. Uh, it's going to be a little more bearable today as we get this airflow going, but uh, we will find a permanent solution. So thanks for bearing with us. A couple other things that we're working on, just to let you know, uh, we are gearing up for the fall. When all of our ministries kick off, group life is coming in a couple weeks, all of our ministries throughout the church are either started or getting ready to start. And we are doing a couple things to get ready for those that will be coming to find the chapel in September. And, and October when we have a lot of people checking us out. So if you, some of you notice we have a new sign on, uh, on the road. We got a new logo like five years ago, but you wouldn't know it here because we had the old sign. But we have a new sign and three of you probably noticed that it was wrinkly on one side. Uh, apparently that's intentional. The sun will stretch it out or I don't know how all that works, but uh, we know about it, but we're excited about that. And if you check in your kids, you probably notice that we have a new awning back there. Louisiana forgot how to rain, so it's not really perfect protecting us from anything, but it looks great. We're trying to get everything ready for, uh, for the fall. So thank you for those of you who give over and above to the maintenance reserve fund. We didn't have to use our grow to go money for those things. Uh, we have money there because some of you have been so generous to give to that. So thank you. Well, like Abram said, we are continuing our series that we're calling The Bible Is. What we realize is we live in a culture and a society that is constantly trying to undermine our confidence in the scriptures. And we need to grow in confidence that this is God's word to us. We want to build the, the foundational teachings that we get as we come to church on a foundation that we recognize is actually solid and not in the least bit shaky. So a couple of weeks ago, we started looking at the idea that the Bible is from God. That God, in his sovereignty and love and goodness, wanted us to have his very words. 
that he revealed himself to us. He pursued us. He didn't leave it so that we would have to try to find him and grope around in the dark and hopefully stumble upon him, but he came to us and gave us what he wants us to know. And if we believe that, it keeps us from going after all these other sources of knowledge and meaning and purpose because God has given that to us. And it should be the goal and ambition of our life to know this book. Last week, Abram took you from Genesis to Revelation, looking at the idea that this book is one coherent story. It's not a bunch of little stories that don't connect together, but everything in this book points to the overarching narrative that God has a plan for the world, that some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation would worship and know him. But he didn't leave that just for us because we couldn't do it on our own. He also left us with his promise that throughout the scriptures, we see God will send a deliverer, a sacrifice for our sins. And we get to look back and know him as Jesus. And if we believe that, then it allows us to know that if every story in here isn't about us, it's about God, then even our own stories are not about us. But God is moving everything towards his plan and his promise for this world. Today, we're going to look at the Bible being true. Another topic that our, our world around us is constantly trying to kick the slats out from under. So allow me to pray for us and for me as we dive into uh, an important topic today. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that in your grace, you chose to make yourself known. And I pray that as we look at it today, you would increase our confidence that you have spoken and we can know you. And God, if there's anything I've planned to say that's not of you, take it out of my mind. And if there's anything you want to say that I've not thought of, would you come and speak? Because we do want to hear from you and be changed. Allow us to leave the distractions that we brought in, the good and the bad. Allow us to leave them at the door so that you will speak to our hearts, and I pray that you would speak through me, your servant. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you the story of a guy named Herman Rosenblatt. Great name, and he's got a very heartwarming story. Herman grew up in a Nazi concentration camp as a child, and every day when he had time, he would go to the fence line and sit, and, and every day, a young girl on the outside of the fence would come and visit him. And she would throw apples over the fence. Not everyone was lucky as he was, but he, because of these apples, he actually got to survive. And he found his freedom several years later. And, and as was, he was trying to get a life for himself, to deal with the trauma from his past and move on and set up a life moving forward, uh, he wanted to meet a woman, so he went on a blind date. And as the conversation was going, the meal was going really well, they found out through conversation that this woman was actually the same girl that was throwing apples over the fence. And so he proposed to her immediately. She said yes. They got married sometime later, and they traveled around telling their story everywhere they could. They got invited onto Oprah. They wrote a memoir. They wanted more and more people to know about this amazing and encouraging story. There's only one problem. It wasn't true. Herman made it up. There was no little girl. 
There was no apples. The only thing that was true about the story was that he met his wife on a blind date. It's a story that we love to listen to. It's a story that tugs on our heartstrings. It's a story that we really want to be true, but it's not. And I think there are many in the world today, many in the church today, maybe many in this room today, that have a wondering in the back of their minds, is that what the Bible's like? We've heard it talked about so much, and maybe we just assume it to be true. There's some things in there that tug at our heartstrings and make us feel good, so maybe we want it to be true. But how can we actually know that this book is true? The Bible talks a lot about itself and and does affirm itself to be true. Listen to how the Apostle Peter, in his second letter to the church that was exiled, writes, starting verse 16, he says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with them on the sacred mountain. But we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's a very different story than the one that I talked about earlier from Herman. It's a powerful testimony that the Bible says about itself. But we live in a culture that is constantly trying to undermine the credibility of the scriptures, constantly criticizing it. And for many, they've just chosen to completely throw the Bible out completely and not deal with it. And I would imagine that it's not just the external world that brings doubts. My guess is many of you in this room also have doubts and questions in your own internal world. Can I actually know this is true and build my life upon it? So today's message is going to be a little different than you may be used to and that we've grown used to over the last several months. I want to speak today to the voice inside your head, the one that every once in a while brings up and says, is this really true? Can I really believe this? I want to speak to your coworker or your friend or neighbor or family that constantly asks you, why would you believe such an old, ancient, outdated document? My goal is to give us confidence in the scriptures, not so that you can win an argument, but so that you can sleep peacefully. Because if this really is the word of God, the very true and perfect words that God has given us, then everything about our life should be to build a foundation upon this unshakable ground that we need to grow in our confidence. So today, I'm going to spend much of our time venturing into the realm of academia. Anyone excited? 
I know not all of us like to go there with, with our thoughts, but what I want to do is give us some confidence as we look at four questions about the truthfulness of Scripture. I would imagine that these are questions that many of you have asked or heard asked or had asked to you. <clears throat> There's a lot of questions that we could answer, and maybe I'm not going to answer the questions that, that you have. So if we don't, I want you to respond to the email that comes from the chapel, but is written by me every Monday. If you don't get that email, come and talk to me. I'll get you on there. But if there's a question I don't answer, just respond because we want to know the questions that are being asked. But in the limited time that we have, these four questions are where I want to spend that time. Now, the academic word that we're going to be talking about today is inerrancy. Theologian Wayne Grudem in his book on systematic theology says this, The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Now what this means is the Bible always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. It doesn't mean that the Bible is claiming to be the only place in the world that truth comes from, and it is not claiming to be talking about every topic in the world. It simply means that the Bible gives truth on the things that it talks about. Now, an assumption that I'm going to be bringing into my answers to these questions is that the Bible actually is from God. If you missed our message two weeks ago, I spent our whole time talking about that idea, revelation, the idea that God has spoken. So I need you to know that I'm assuming that information in our answer. So if you missed that message, you might want to go back and find it on Spotify so that you can listen to it and catch up. But that's one of the assumptions that I'm bringing in. So the assumption is God has spoken. And everything God has spoken is true, but that happened several thousand years ago. So how can we have confidence that this book that we hold in our hands is true and consistent and reliable? So here we go. Get ready for getting back into a classroom at LSU if that's where you were. Our first question is this, has the Bible been changed? It's a question that I've heard a lot. It's a question that a lot of people will talk about. Now, if you remember from our definition of inerrancy, we said that the Bible is absolutely true in the original manuscripts. The reality is we don't actually have in our possession any of the original manuscripts of any part of the Bible. I hope we find one one day. That would be pretty cool. But we don't currently have in the world possessing the original documents. So how can we have any confidence that this book is to be trusted? Well, in order to answer that question, I need to venture into a realm and nerd out a little bit into a literary science called textual criticism. Textual criticism. It's a science that tracks ancient documents to try to determine if they are consistent, reliable, and credible. Back in the day before the printing press, instead we would have actual scribes taking a document, taking out pen and paper, and taking what they found and copied it here. So they would copy all of these documents, and then eventually the Bible was translated into many languages, and then scribes would copy those, and it would keep happening over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And we ended up with all of these different manuscripts out there. Now, textual criticism is a science that doesn't just track the Bible. It also tra- tracks all types of ancient documents, many that are still loved and read today. So how do they stack up? 
Well, take a look at this chart. This is the simplest chart I could find. If you're interested in diving into the nerdiness, you can Google how does the Bible relate to ancient, uh, ancient texts, and you can find a lot more information. But what I want us to see from here is a couple of different things. The first is look at how many manuscripts exist, MSS stands for manuscripts, in some of these different texts. Some of these texts that no one questions, everybody reads, something like the Iliad from Homer. What we see is that there are so many more manuscripts from the New Testament. And maybe you're thinking, well, you're just cherry picking some, some, some texts that we don't have a lot of information on. These are actually the most, these are the top seven most attested to ancient texts that we actually have in existence. And it doesn't even compare how many manuscripts we have. The other thing to notice is look at the time span between the original writing and the earliest manuscript that we have. So what this shows us is that there is a statistically improbable amount of data to be able to check if the Bible is consistent. But if you have a keen eye, you're probably raising another question. 25 to 50 years is still a really long time. How can we be confident that in those 25 to 50 years from the original that, that things weren't changed? Well, that is the exact question that textual criticism seeks to ask. The process is to take all of the documents that we have in existence and go from the earliest back to the oldest to see, has it been changed? Has there been any bits of consistently changed? Can we actually check to see if this is right? So when scientists have done that and they have tracked all the way back and looked at thousands and thousands of manuscripts, they found that the New Testament is, get this, 99% the same. Out of 138,000 words in the New Testament, only 1,392 of them have what we call variants. A variant could be a misspelling of a word, a double word, a skipped line, a double line, some things that you would expect to have happen if human beings are taking a translation and just copying everything down. So if you take out all of those obvious variants, still feeling like you're in school, right? You take out all of the obvious variants, guess how many we have that we're unsure about? 10. And none of them have any theological impact on the meaning of those 10 texts. The Old Testament's even crazier. We have over 42,000 manuscripts, but up until 1947, the oldest manuscript of the Old Testament we had was from 1000 AD. But then in 1947, a shepherd boy found what are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls in a cave in Qumran by the Dead Sea. Those scrolls are dated at 230 BC to 50 AD, somewhere in that time frame. At least a thousand years difference from the manuscripts that we had. Guess how consistent those were with what we had? 98%. So why all this nerd talk? That's the real question. 
Because you can actually have logical, scientific, and research-backed confidence that the words that were originally there in the original manuscripts are the words that God wanted you to have that you get to hold in your hand. That means that God, in his oversight and preservation, has given you the very words that he wanted to transform your life, for you to know him. We hold in our hands the words that God wanted us to hold. Now, some of you note-takers in the room are like, you never filled in my blank, right? Some of you are, figuring, are thinking that. Has the Bible been changed? No. No, it has not. Here's our second question. Can the Bible be inerrant if it was written by humans? We've already talked about how humans were the ones that took pen to paper and and wrote God's word. So even if we say that we have the same words now that we did from the original, if it was humans that wrote it down, how can we have any confidence that those were the actual words that God wanted us to have? What if those humans were the ones who were infallible and messed the whole thing up? This gets into a theological concept called inspiration. It's a word that Theologians and church leaders have used throughout history to explain how God spoke and humans wrote and passed it on. It's what Peter was talking about in the verse we looked at in the beginning. In chapter uh, 1, verse 21, he says, For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So how did it happen? What, What is inspiration? Was it like a poet or an artist where they see a cloud or a small dog and they're like, I have inspiration. I will put this beautiful thing on paper. Is it like God coming in and just kind of taking over your hand and writing the words that he wants you to write? Is it God dictating words that people heard and wrote down? No, inspiration is none of those things. Inspiration means that God in his power and preservation, and oversight designed the lives of those who would write his word to be perfectly suited and ready to express what God wanted to express. Theologian Wayne Grudem again puts it this way. This is a long quote, but I think it's helpful. It says, God's providential oversight and direction of the life of each author was such that their personalities, their backgrounds, and training their abilities to evaluate events in the world around them, their access to historical data, their judgment with regard to the accuracy of information, their individual circumstances when they wrote, were all exactly what God wanted them to be. So that when they actually came to the point of putting pen to paper, the words were fully their own words, but also fully the words God wanted them to write. Words that God would also claim as his own. This is why Paul, writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, can say this. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Each of these questions that we're tackling, we could spend an entire Sunday on, but it's clear from the biblical text and from assuming that the Bible is the word of God, that God intended to use human beings to write his words so that they could be understandable to other human beings and translated and sent on throughout generations. 
So can the Bible be inerrant if it was written by humans? Yes. Third question. Doesn't the Bible contain errors? Maybe you've heard this before. I've heard this before. People will look for something and they'll say, well, this is, this is a contradiction. This is an error in the scripture. This doesn't seem to be what it was trying to say. Even if you concede that, okay, God had people write his very words and we know exactly what those words are, that doesn't mean that in the original there aren't contradictions. This goes to the dependability of the Bible. Now, there have been many scriptures throughout the generations that people have read and they and find them to be very difficult to understand. And many times we'll call them errors or contradictions because we can't understand them. But we got to remember that the Bible was not written in English. And it wasn't written through on a modern American worldview. So sometimes we need to do the hard work of geographical, cultural, linguistic, historical research to figure out what was actually being talked about here. One of the most important principles in Bible study is this. The Bible cannot mean what it never meant. The Bible cannot mean what it never meant. That means in order to understand what the Bible means for us, we have to first understand what the original author meant for the original audience. And then we can apply it to ourselves. An example of this is when we look at quotations and, and if we're writing a quotation on a paper or something, it has to be exact, right? If it's not exact in a term paper, you get kicked out of school for plagiarism. In American literature, it's really important to quote things exactly. And there are a lot of quotations of the Old Testament and the New Testament that use different words. So an American reader will look at that and say, there must be an error, there must be a contradiction. But that's imposing a cultural value that we have on the text. In the ancient Near East, that wasn't something that they worried about. So most people and most contradictions and errors that are seen could fall into one of four camps. The first is carelessness. This is interpreting a phrase or a sentence without regard to its narrative context or genre. For example, when we read poetry, we don't assume that every image that is used is something that we're to take literally. So when we read the Psalms and we see God covered us with his wings, if we're not careful and don't realize that the genre is poetry, then we might have an image of God with wings. But that's not what was being intended. The second is this, completeness. This is assuming that every account of every event that is recorded in the Bible was meant to give all of the information that it could have given. One of the contradictions that is talked about the most is the idea that in every gospel account, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, there are different people who are said to have been at the tomb after Jesus was crucified. And people will look at that and they say, well, that must be a contradiction. But we wouldn't use the same logic in a courtroom. When people come with an eyewitness account, they're not looking to see that every single eyewitness has the exact amount of complete information. They're looking for the things that are similar to find out if they can build a story. Each of these accounts were eyewitness accounts. They would have seen, they would have heard, they would have remembered different details. 
So we need to look at the genre, look at what was happening, and realize that's not an error. That's just different people coming from a different perspective. The third is confusion. This is treating the same event or the same people or different people or different events as the same thing. So when you read through the Gospels, you will find two different accounts of the feeding of thousands of people. One is the feeding of the 5,000. One is the feeding of the 4,000. And if we actually look at the text, we find out that those are two completely different events that happen in different places and in different times. Not a contradiction because it's not talking about the same event. The fourth is context. Ignoring facts about the language and the culture and imposing our own. My favorite example of this is whenever people, I've heard this a lot, people will interpret Jesus' words saying, you are the salt of the earth. We'll interpret that saying, that means that we are to melt the ice cold hearts of the world around us because salt melts ice. The only problem with that is there wasn't much ice in Israel. And they weren't using salt to melt it. They used salt for different things, like preserving meats. So we know that that cannot be what Jesus was talking about. It's a lot of information that we're talking about. But what I want to do as we talk about these things is I want to arm you with confidence. I want you to be able to hear questions, have doubts, and be able to go to the scriptures with the assumption that it's true. And not to be afraid of these questions and these doubts that come up because the hard work that we do to figure out what the Bible is talking about, not only will it show us that the Bible continues to prove to be true, but it will also increase your confidence. One of the greatest reasons we can have confidence in the Bible is a lifetime of watching it prove itself and a lifetime of seeing it transform you. Those just don't happen to be the questions that people ask us. But when we do the hard work to figure out, man, these seem like contradictions. Let's actually go to the source and see if it is. It will build your confidence as we do the hard work, as we have conversations in church, as we go to resources and find different things. So does the Bible contain errors? The answer is no. Fourth question. And then we'll get back to preaching in a second, I promise. Is the Bible accurate? Okay, so we know that humans wrote the Bible, God's words. We know that we have the very same words that were in the original. And in that original, there are no errors within it. But that doesn't mean that the Bible is actually true. So how can we know if it's actually true? Is it even consistent with the things that we know to be true from history and science? This goes to the reliability of the Bible. So back to our definition of inerrancy. It says this, The inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Wayne Grudem, he gave that definition, continues and says this, This definition... In simple terms, just means that the Bible always tells the truth and that it always tells the truth concerning everything it talks about. This definition does not mean that the Bible tells us every fact that there is to know about any one subject, but it affirms that what it does say about any subject is true. This is a really important distinction. 
And I want to give you an example of this. Back when people uh, thought or didn't know that the earth revolved around the sun, Christians and everyone else in the world assumed that the sun revolved around the earth. We read that in our, in our history books because from our perspective, that's what happened. So people back in the day, when they read a verse like Jonah chapter 4, verse 8, that says, when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. When people read that, they would conclude that the Bible must be teaching that the earth or the sun revolves around the earth. But then when we determined through science that that's not actually true, the earth revolves around the sun, nobody should have, this is probably a bad example because some people did, you know, kill people who are trying to say these things. But as we look now, we don't have Christians being like, well, it says that the sun rose, therefore the Bible teaches that the sun moves. Rather, what it does is amplify our understanding of the scriptures. And we get to see that Jonah wasn't making a scientific statement. He was just showing what he observed. I'm going to read this next part because I think it's so important. It's not a quote. It's just me trying to focus in on what we're trying, trying to communicate here. What this means is we shouldn't fear science and historical study as if it will contradict the Bible. But rather, we should be excited for and embrace historical and scientific findings because it will actually give us a better understanding of the Bible. And that's because the Bible is always proved accurate. If we can come with the conviction that this really is the word of God and it always proves true, then we don't need to worry about any branch of science or history. We should be excited because when we learn about the world that God has created, it's going to help us understand this book better. And that can, the confidence can only come from that if we believe that this really is God's word and it never fails. Listen to what the Smithsonian Department of Anthropology says, not a Christian organization. Much of the Bible, in particular the historical books of the Old Testament, are as accurate historical documents as any that we have from antiquity and are in fact more accurate than many of the Egyptian, Mesopotamian, and Greek histories. These biblical records can be and are used, as are other ancient documents, in archaeological work. For the most part, historical events described took place and people cited really existed. It's not to say that the names of all peoples and places mentioned can be identified today or that every event as reported in the historical books happened exactly as stated. So is the Bible accurate? Yes. But I want to add in what it intends to say. Every statement that the Bible makes is not intended to be a scientific or historical statement. We have to do the hard work to figure out what is it saying and what did it mean to the original audience. We have covered a lot of grounds. And again, my goal is to give us some confidence that through logic, through science, through research, this book has been attested to. So I want to give us a summary of what we've talked about. You'll find it on the screen. The Bible is preserved. It is the most attested to document ever written while also being the most criticized. The Bible is inspired. God had humans write his words so it could be understood translated, and transmitted throughout generations. 
The Bible is dependable. In 66 books by 40 authors over 1,600 years in three languages across three continents, it's a coherent, unified story without error. And the Bible is reliable. It is true and correct in everything that it means to say. And we have not spent a lot of time talking about application in this series. That's for next week. And I know a lot of you will be traveling for Labor Day. So if you're out of town, I want to encourage you to jump on the chapel online so that you can finish this series with us. But before we finish today, I want to leave you with one more question. Will you build your life on this book? These are the very words of God. And we can have confidence that what we hold is what God intended us to have. They are the very words that God gave us so that we can know him and trust in Jesus, that we can build our life upon. Will you build your life on this book? We have all of these words throughout the scriptures. But for what purpose? It's not just so that we can have the contents. It's not just so that we can have some good arguments against the world around us. It's not just so that we can have more knowledge and more vocabulary and win arguments. It's not just so we can have rules and commands and principles and all of these things. The reason we have what God intended us to have is so that we can know him and so that we can know Jesus. That is why we have this book. As Jesus was ministering to the people of of his day, the religious leaders that we know as Pharisees were constantly coming and trying to contradict everything that he had to say. They were the ones that were supposed to teach the people. They were the ones that looked holy, dressed holy, act holy. They were the ones that everyone around would come and learn from them because they were the ones that knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And you would think for someone that knew the Bible that well, they would be the ones that were closest to God. But we see quite the opposite in the Gospels. We see that they were mostly in it for themselves. That they kept leading people astray. And that they kept missing Jesus. And in John chapter 5, Jesus puts his finger on why. He says this, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. Studying the Bible, knowing the Bible, obeying the Bible, memorizing the Bible. They're all really good things to do, but they all only have one purpose, that we would know Jesus. Everything in here is written so that we would know him. It's not to make you a Bible scholar. It's not to allow you to increase your vocabulary and your knowledge and to win arguments with other people and feel really good about the things that we know. Everything in here is intended by God for us to know and follow Jesus. The reason we're spending so much time talking about the Bible is because it's the only way that God has given us to know him. And if that is not where our pursuit of his word ends, then we have completely missed it. This book explained to me that God actually loves me. 
This is the book that explained to me that I was not the good person that I thought I was, but I was actually a rebellious sinner against God, even though I was the goody two-shoes growing up. This is the book that showed me that God did not leave me in that, but he sent his son to die the death that I deserved and to rise from the dead that I could have life. And not only that, this is the book that even allows me to stand on this platform serving with you. Without this book, I wouldn't have gotten through probably one of the hardest moments of my life as my wife was sitting sick for months at a time in bed. I wouldn't have known the next steps to take. I wouldn't know where peace and confidence could come from. This is the book that allowed me to have confidence in a world that is politically and economically and racially and every other Lee torn apart. Without this book, we have nothing to build on. And that's what I want for you. I want you to have the same confidence and I want you to have the same hunger to know this book. And it's important that we go through some of the facts so that we can know this is actually something that we can say, I believe it just because I believe it. We have more than just that. We can know based on the facts, based on history, based on research and science that we can trust this book. But that's not just what it's about. This book points us to him. And everything in it points us to what Jesus has done. And that's what I want for you. And every time I'm up here teaching from this book, we will learn and grow together. But if it does not have the purpose and the effect of making us treasure Jesus more, then it was a waste of time. Every time we approach this book, it needs to be about grounding ourselves deeper in how good God is and what he has done through Jesus. Let me pray for us. God, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're grateful that you have allowed us to know you. We're grateful that you have given us your word, that we can hear your words. We're grateful that you pursued us, you came after us, you revealed yourself to us. But more than all of that, God, we're grateful that you have shown us the way to know you through your son, Jesus. And I pray for all of us as we leave from here and as we keep gathering together over the weeks and months and years, that you would use your word to let us treasure Jesus that we would build our lives upon what you have done. We would build our hope on what you have said. We would build our futures on your promises and that we would trust no matter what chaos is around us, no matter what turmoil is inside of us, no matter where our lives go, that we can trust that you are with us and you have a perfect plan. And you have shown it to us in a way that we can understand. In Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to end singing a song together that my hope and prayer for you would allow some of the things that we have talked about to sink into your heart. That you would not just have your mind on the words and on yourself, but you would lift your eyes to Jesus and you would ask him to build your confidence in his word, to build your hunger for his word, and that we would enjoy his presence together. So would you stand with us as we sing?
Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.